Today we are traveling. We're traveling light years away from where we've been in the first three messages in this series, Heaven Help the Home. And we've spent those three weeks, the past three weeks, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, perhaps the most important chapters in all the Bible, for understanding God's design and for understanding our predicament as human beings. And last week, at the end of Genesis 3, we hit rock bottom. We saw the fall of humanity into sin, and we saw the fallout for humanity, specifically husband and wife in marriage, and all of the selfishness that sin brings. But fortunately, by the grace of God, we also saw a forecasting of what God was going to do in his grace and how he had planned from the very beginning to reverse the curse. God would have the last, the decisive word. God would send the word in order to do that. Now we know that the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward shows us that the nature of humanity didn't change. The nature of family and marriage and all the dysfunction there. In fact, all the stories of the Old Testament simply confirm the overwhelming evidence, the devastating description of the helpless nature of human nature, people like you and me. That includes all the ways that sin royally ruins our lives, not only in our world, but in our families, and even maybe especially in our marriages. So it's thousands of years later that Jesus the Christ came to enter that same fallen world a world in need of saving, in need of a savior, and came to bring it. Genesis 3 shows that the world, that the family, that marriage is broken. Ephesians 5, where we'll be today, shows that marriage can be redeemed. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. One of our hosts would be glad to give you a Bible if you didn't bring one. A gift to you if you don't own one and on loan to you this morning. If you do, you can just turn that in at the end of the service. Just raise your hand and we'll give that to you. Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me give one more plug for this book called The Gospel and Marriage, part of the Gospel for Life series. A little book with a power punch to it on these topics this winter. Over in room 6, you can make a purchase of that book, a great companion to our series on marriage from the Bible and God's plan. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we're going to be in the second half of that chapter. Uh, once you've found that, I'd invite you to stand, and we're going to read the Word of God beginning in verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 21 reads, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. 
but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thanks, you may have a seat. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if this passage sounds familiar to you, that's because it is. If you've been to any or many weddings before, this is one of the most frequently chosen passages by couples or by a pastor who officiates. These words ring familiar to us, whatever they may cause in us. But familiarity can be problematic. Familiarity can be deceptive because it makes us think that we understand what we hear and what we read, even if we really don't. It's a little like the, the restaurant or the shopping center or the landmark that you drive by again and again, but with very little focused attention. And then one day, someone says, do you know what's inside there? And you're stopped in your tracks. You're at a loss for words because you don't know what it represents. You've never really thought about it. You've never really investigated. You've just driven by repeatedly, oblivious to really what's inside, what it means, why it's significant. That's a lot like Ephesians 5 for most of us. It's familiar territory, but it's really territory that we've never really explored or even understood. We're going to be investigating this passage both this week and next week. This week from a 30,000-foot view. We're going to look at the magnificent purpose and the nature of marriage as God has designed it, and specifically its connection to Jesus Christ and his church. Next week, we go back down to ground level and examine this passage asking ourselves what the particulars of this mean, especially for a husband and for a wife. In other words, today is Ephesians 5 from a wide-angle view, what we might call a divine painting, a divine masterpiece for our reflection. On the back of your worship program, you have a set of notes and outline, and the first thing that we see there is that God redeems relationships, especially marriage. And that's good news coming out of Genesis 3. In the second half of Ephesians, chapter 4 to 6, Paul puts flesh on the theological skeleton that he's put together in Ephesians 1 to 3. In those latter chapters, he begins to describe and detail what life looks like for saved individuals and saved couples and saved marriages and saved communities. And in the middle of chapter 5, Paul gets really specific about what that looks like in the context of relationships. In fact, we see the main subject, the topic sentence, in verse 15 and later in verse 18. Look there, Ephesians chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live. Later in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Here are two commands that govern all that follows. Be careful then how you live. Be filled with the Spirit. And almost everything that Paul writes after that is connected to that, to highlight what that kind of living, what those kind of relationships look like. And Paul describes that in five actions here, kind of five bullet points in those verses that describe Christ-controlled living. And every believer is in view. Young and old, male and female, single and married, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. If you know Jesus Christ in a saving way, this includes you. Here's what gives evidence to our faith. Look there. 
speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, spiritual songs. Verse 19. Singing, we see there. Making music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God our Father for everything. Speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. That last one there, submitting, is written to and expected of all believers. We're expected to voluntarily submit ourselves, display submission in the context where God has set up some kind of leadership, someone or something to carry responsibility. And our willingness to do that actually is the evidence that the Spirit of God lives in our lives. We highlight Jesus Christ by our willingness to follow the design of God. That's important this week and next. Then Paul outlines three different relationships, three contexts where the control of the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus is evidence. And the first and the longest of these is marriage. It's the rest of chapter 5. That's going to be our focus today and next week. A familiar passage, rich in meaning and often misunderstood. Into chapter 6, we see the second context, verses 1 to 4. Children and parents, we'll look at that later this month and into March. And the last context, uh, in the workplace, uh, a rough analogy, verses 5 to 9 in chapter 6, which we won't be looking at in this particular series. But in each of these areas, Paul's saying that central to your lives, if you know Jesus Christ, is a profound opportunity, an important opportunity to show who controls, who guides your life. Is it Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit? Or is it your own flesh, your desires to show what's best? Paul invites us here to let the Holy Spirit have control. And the only way you can is if you know Jesus Christ in a saving way. If you do, you have the Holy Spirit living in you to show the proof of Jesus in your life. And we see this perhaps most profoundly in marriage. Of all the places where there's evidence for who controls our lives the home may be the most revealing. Of all the relationships in the home and in the family that show that, marriage might be most central. That's certainly true today, maybe even more so in the time of Paul. In other parts of our world, certainly back in Paul's day, family members spent more time in the household, at home, around each other. The, the home was the place where uh, work happened. Uh, around there, shopping took place. It was a social center. It was a relational hub all in one. The household's function, working, eating, socializing, sleeping, sexuality, all of these things revealed the priorities, the values of people. That's why one scholar says in the Greco-Roman world, relationships with, within the Christian home were bound to have an effect on the surrounding society. That's precisely why Paul ties in appropriate behavior with believers' wise conduct in the world, which involves them in making the most of every opportunity and understanding the Lord's will in the present, exactly what Paul had just written. In other words, the home, the household, showed off what you believed and who was Lord. Our lives in the home are billboards for God's transformation. Let me say that again. Our lives in the home are billboards 
for God's transformation, if God can change hearts, if God can save us from the scourge, from the sadness of sin, then it's got to be observable in the closest and most personal relationships. If it doesn't show itself in the home, what power, what credibility does God's salvation really have? That's a fair question for people to ask as they look at us. And that's why family matters so much to followers of Jesus. That's why marriage is such a profound indicator of God's work in our lives. And yet what God offers isn't an upheaval from his original design, but a restoration to what he meant in the first place. God's desires are to highlight the diversity of his creation. Point two, God weaves beautiful complementarity into his creation. Big word, complementarity. God's a God of, of diversity, of unity, but not of uniformity. We see that in the Bible. God loves differences. God loves taking differences and putting them together so that their splendor and their magnificence are greater than each of them individually. Think of a puzzle that you, you throw out on the table or you, you, you put on the floor and, and it all looks like a big mess and you think this, this can't fit. But when it's all put together days or weeks or months later, aha, it makes sense. Look at the beauty. You, you look at a garden that's all a mess and... and Things planted, strewn everywhere. But when someone tends to that and, and puts together a flower garden in all of its diversity, you step back and you say, amazing how all that could fit together. The parts complement each other. In Ephesians chapter 5 here, Paul highlights diversity and complementarity in marriage. Two human beings of equal value, but of different design. There's male and there's female. There's husband and there's wife. They're meant for the benefit of each other. They're not meant to replace or to frustrate each other. You get that? We weren't given to each other to frustrate each other. To the contrary, we're given to complete one another and show off the glorious design of God. When we fight against that, when we fight against our design or against our spouse, we walk right into the trap of Satan to our detriment. That's why the Bible is so clear in its affirmation of two distinct genders. Male and female are important in life and in marriage. John Stott, who lived to the ripe age of 91 or 2 years old, never married, said profoundly, a man finds himself by being a man, and a woman finds herself by being a woman. Genuine self-discovery and self-fulfillment do not come from striving to be somebody else or from imitating the opposite sex. How right he was and is. Why does this matter? Why is our culture's current experiment so dangerous and so destructive? Well, here's why. Because someday, many, perhaps most of those children will grow up and consider entering a marriage relationship. And if they don't have an understanding, a confidence in their gender identity, the way God created them, kids and teenagers in here, the way God created you, you're going to face massive struggles in relating to that other person. If Johnny doesn't embrace his male identity, how is he going to understand what it means to be a husband? If Susie doesn't understand her female identity, how is she going to understand what it means to be a wife? 
And given that marriage involves sexual intimacy, if you don't understand the distinctions between the genders, how are you ever going to appreciate God's design of someone who is equal in value, but made to complement to complete you? Complementarity matters greatly because gender matters greatly. And gender matters greatly in part because marriage matters greatly. See, here in Ephesians 5, Paul's toggling back and forth between a very earthly reality, husband and wife in marriage, and a very profound divine reality, Jesus Christ and his church. And when we speak of the church, we're speaking not just of the gathered community right here, but through the ages and around the world, every person and only those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, forgiven of their sins, and brought into his family. That's the church of which God speaks here. And God highlights the gospel through marriage as depicted there. Officiating at a wedding, especially if it involves some premarital counseling, is an experience that's ripe with uniqueness and peculiarity. There are a lot of reasons for that, but here's perhaps the biggest one. You've got two people and two families who are bringing in all kinds of assumptions and expectations, and dare I say it, baggage, related to what marriage is and how it's supposed to be celebrated and how this wedding day shows it off. And you have people who think that marriage is all about their happiness and their self-worth. I've officiated weddings of people of two different ethnic backgrounds, of different racial backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Perhaps the most memorable occasion for me was the wedding of two of our German friends about 18 years ago. Both of them were highly educated. They were well-employed. Each of them had a religious background in their childhood, one Lutheran, one Catholic. And they were staunchly opposed to most of what an evangelical wedding represented. But for some reason, they liked and admired Letitia and me. At least it seemed that way. So they asked us to officiate their wedding. And we agreed on the condition that we would be able to give them some premarital counseling, which was ironic because though we had been married for seven or eight years, they were a couple of years older than we were. The counseling was fascinating. We talked about various Bible passages, what sacrificial love was all about. They ate it up. It all sounded good until they came to Ephesians 5 and the difference of husband and wife, and we looked at Genesis 3 and the fallen nature of all of us. They weren't so keen on that. The wedding itself took place not at a church, but at a castle that they had rented outside of Berlin in Germany. The music wasn't some standard organ number. They had flown in an American gospel singer to be their special music. The officiant wasn't just missionary Mike. It was their friends, Mike and Letitia. They, they, they required that both of us were part of it. So... I ensured that Letitia said the most controversial things at that <laughs> wedding ceremony. As you know, some things haven't changed. They, they welcomed our words. We showed them to them in advance, and long after the wedding, they expressed that. In many ways, we were the very kind of people they were most skeptical of and most envious of. Weddings reveal some of the strangest things about what people think and expect and value. Russell Moore is a pastor. He's a theologian. 
He's the president of what's called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he, he wrote a book a year or two ago called The Storm-Tossed Family, a book of the year from Christianity Today, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. And he tells a story or two of what he's encountered. Every day I deal with religion, culture, and politics, he writes, with some of the most incendiary questions of the day. And yet the most controversial thing I ever say is usually not in a television debate about some culture war issue, but instead is in my office when I talk to a couple about their wedding. Sometimes the controversy is because I won't officiate at a wedding that I believe would cause me to violate my conscience, such as a believer marrying an unbeliever. Sometimes the blowback comes when I won't allow the wedding party to trivialize the occasion by, say, swinging at a pinata of the bride and groom during the ceremony, or for the father of the bride to threaten publicly to shoot the groom should he ever cheat on his little girl. And yes, that happened one time. <laughs> Not the shooting, I believe, the threat. Usually, though, the controversy arises when I tell the couple that they won't be writing their own vows. Sometimes this results in a huffing away of the couple. How dare I tell them that they can't construct their own vows when this is their ceremony? And that's the point. This is not, in fact, their ceremony. A man and a woman do not innovate their own covenant vows because apart from the rest of the community, they don't know what vows to make. Sure, they can speak of how much they love one another, how much they look forward to spending the rest of their lives together, but, and here it is, the primary purpose of covenant vows, that is marriage, is not in reference to one's feelings in the moment, but to one's commitment in the face of the unpredictable and the unimaginable. How many of you knew when you got married what you would experience together? And the answer is no one, and that's the point. Moore goes on to say in that book, in a Christian marriage, those gathered are not an audience, but witnesses. The gathered witnesses are a sign that the church is here to hold the couple accountable to their vows before God. The marriage is not just about the couple, but about the gospel. That means that marriage is the business of the whole church. And if that's true, it involves every one of us. Young and old, male and female, single and married, we're all called to support, to uphold marriage within the family of God. And the reason for that is simple, but it's profound because marriage highlights the gospel. And the gospel is worth all of our efforts to promote and protect it. The gospel is the diamond of God's revelation. And the gospel is pictured as Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. We see that here in this passage, verse 25 and following, Christ as the bridegroom. Paul stacks up here five verbs to show what Jesus does in commitment to his bride. He loved her. He gave himself up for her. He sanctifies her, having cleansed her, that he might present her to himself. Each one of those is worthy of unpacking. We don't have the time this morning. But the central feature is that Jesus loves, and therefore he sacrifices for the good of the other. And that's the nature of love. Love is a disposition to act for the good of the other, even at cost to oneself. Write that down. Love is a disposition to act for the good of the other, even at cost to oneself. Love may have feelings, but it's not primarily a feeling. It 
may have observers, but it's not primarily for observers. It's a settled commitment of the will that responds in sacrifice. And that's precisely what Jesus did, Paul tells us, and what he does for his bride. In fact, he went to the supreme lengths to make that happen. His love spurred him to sacrificial action. It's interesting that Paul likely had in mind something deep in the Old Testament when he wrote this. We, we won't read it here, but in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 9 to 14, there's this description of God's work for his people Israel to make them ready for himself. He describes them in some graphic terms and describes what he does for them in this way. Paul likely has that in mind as he writes here. I remember my thoughts on the day that I saw Letitia walk down the aisle to be my bride, and her beauty was perfect. She was adorned to perfection. Her dress was stunning. To me, she was the queen. She was worthy of all my efforts to promote her fame. It was a take-your-breath-away moment, and many of you husbands know that well. Your wife, my wife in that instance, was, was beautiful, as beautiful as my eyes had ever taken in, and yet I couldn't take any credit. That was her, and that was those who prepared her for the day. With us as the church, it's Jesus Christ who works to make us beautiful. The New Testament says that on several occasions. One of those is in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, and into chapter 3. We read there, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself, familiar language, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, chapter 3, verse 4, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. That, friends, is what Jesus does for those who belong to his bride. And that's the second point there, the church as the bride. Paul then describes here the outcome for the bride of Christ. She will be a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The result of Christ's love, his sacrificial investment, is this church that is stunning to him and to the world. A bride full of splendor. A, a bride ready to enjoy a lifetime and eternity with him. And we look forward to the consummation, the culmination one day. Kind of reminds us of what it says at the end of the book, the Bible that is, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. This shows us where we're headed as the bride of Christ. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, his saints. This is the future of our relationship as the church with Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. Incidentally, next week we're going to celebrate this. 
In our communion service, as Pastor Jonathan said, part of that is a time for us to reflect and anticipate on what Jesus is doing for us to prepare us for the future. Jesus forecasted that for his disciples then and now, and we await that to come. If you're a believer, we invite, we urge you to be a part of that remembrance and celebration next Sunday night. How does this beauty take place, though, for us as the church? Not just here, but around the world and through the ages. Well, it takes place because of what Jesus does for us. Paul tells us what, what that will be. He tells us even now how that is. Jesus will give himself for her in order that she may develop her full potential under God and so become more completely herself. What Jesus Christ is doing in believers in the church is a picture for what God intends in marriage, specifically for the husband as he relates to his wife, to show off her magnificence and to provide her well-being. Said differently, the marriage relationship is transparent to God's purposes on a larger scale. Here it is. No other relationship within the family so fully mirrors God's purposes in the universe. Let that be a reminder to husbands and wife, wives that the most important relationship in your family is one another. One of our pastors this week brought up the movie The Sixth Sense. Some of you have seen that, but a lot of different movies could apply here, some of which you have undoubtedly seen. The plot moves along, and you're confused. You don't understand what's going on and where this is leading. Certain characters enter and leave, and you don't get the connection that they have. Near the end of the movie, you're throwing your hands up in the air saying, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense until that last culminating scene when things begin to come together and references made 30 minutes or an hour ago all of a sudden come into light, and you have this eureka aha moment. Oh, that's what's happening. Now I get it. Ephesians 5 is God's way of providing for us a eureka moment where we see, oh, that's the point of marriage. Why does your marriage matter, you might ask? Why does marriage exist? Contemporary pastor John Piper helps us here. The meaning of marriage is the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. It's about more than just the two of you. What does this do? Well, this lifts marriage out of the sordid sitcom images and gives it the magnificent meaning God meant to have it. What you see on TV is not the point of marriage. This gives marriage a solid basis in grace since God Christ obtained and sustains his bride by grace alone. Marriage isn't simply you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. There's something much grander going on. This shows that the husband's headship and the wife's submission are crucial and crucified. This underscores how God, the grand designer, made it for us, for our, for our fulfillment, for our thriving, and for his glory. We'll see that next week. It means that marriage is much more than us. God intends marriage to transcend personal satisfaction. This is shocking to most people who get married or are married. Often in premarital counseling, you'll ask the question, what do you anticipate, what do you expect in marriage? The husband and wife or the fiancé will, will say to me and to the other, well, I'm 
looking forward to having children or a financially viable home or a wonderful sex life. The answers go on and on. Finally, someone will be honest and say, I'm looking forward to him or her making me happier. They both want to be happy, and they think that that special someone will significantly increase the chances of happiness for them. Marriage somehow is going to provide for them something that celibacy or, or remaining single won't. But God says that's not the point. There's something much greater than the potential for personal satisfaction. And that stops future brides and grooms in their tracks, and that's a good thing, because marriage may enhance your life. Marriage certainly will complicate your life. Don't say amen. <laughs> marriage is likely to increase the suffering in your life. But marriage offers a greater why. Marriage is an invitation for those who enter to, to picture in visible form what God is doing in the universe. And that is compelling indeed. Moore writes, the reality is marriage is not a vehicle for self-actualization. Every person getting married should read that. If we see it as such, we'll be disillusioned and disappointed. Marriage is an embedded picture of the gospel. It is a gospel tract. It was God's intention from the beginning when he made, when he instituted marriage, to picture Christ and his church. Your mundane and messed up marriage has divine purposes all over it. Do you believe that? Our youngest pastoral staff member said something profound this week. Both a warning and an invitation to all of us when he said this. Joel said, the, the gospel has to be at the center. If we're not for our spouse, then even our efforts to make marriage better come from a sense of selfishness for my increased happiness. It's not primarily coming from a desire to magnify the gospel and what God has done for us. But when we catch that sixth sense, especially about marriage, it gives us divine perspective and publicity in our marriages. Right now, especially if you're married, you may feel that Christ has nothing to do with the travails of your marriage. Constant conflict, battle to raise young children, perpetual exhaustion, agony over adult children, frustration in your sex life, financial worries, women from Venus, men from Mars. It, it can all seem so pathetic, so pointless, so, so devoid of purpose. In fact, marriage can even be painful. But the news this morning from Ephesians 5 is that your reality is actually much bigger, much grander than what you see. What if God was seeking to do something in your marriage, through your marriage, that you weren't even aware of? What if God is weaving together a bigger story that has the potential to tell the world what he's doing in history? And what if the audience for you is your own children? your own extended family, your co-workers, your neighbors, so that they might see, oh, that's what God is doing. If you don't know the saving power of Jesus Christ, you're made in his image, but I got to tell you this morning, I pity you. 
because you don't have access to the power of God to transform you and your marriage from the inside out. I beg you, one human being to another, one sinner in need of grace to another, find Jesus. He can change it all. And for many of you who are here and have a relationship with Jesus Christ who, who's forgiven your sins, are you trusting on his power to make your marriage what he intended? Are you going through the slog and the messed up reality of your marriage without perspective? Or do you understand that God is seeking to show off something far greater through the two of you? Are you running just on battery power? Or is the power of God the source of your marriage? The gospel is what we picture, and the gospel is what fuels us. That's what God designed marriage for. God designed marriage to be a living portrait on earth, to display the splendor of His plan from heaven. And if you're married, that includes you.